Hi everyone, I wanted to give a quick announcement before getting into this episode. I now have beautiful History of US Economics mugs, which I'm sending out to anyone who donates to my Patreon on a monthly or per episode basis. I also wanted to share that I'm the researcher, writer, narrator, and editor of this show, and each episode takes dozens of hours to produce. I'm not doing it for money, it's just something I'm passionate about, and it's a story I believe everyone should hear. But, if you do want to support this project, and drink your coffee from an awesome History of U.S. Economics mug, then hop over to patreon.com forward slash U.S. Econ podcast. And thank you. Now on to the history of U.S. Economics. This episode picks up in the 1840s, just after the fall of cotton prices and the resulting tightening of credit, which led to the panics of 1837 and 1839. Firms that were too exposed to cotton or its auxiliary industries like real estate or slavery got wiped out in the resulting depression that lasted until the mid-1840s. But around 1845, after a six-year-long depression, the cycle turned around, then the economy began to recover due in part to the economic effects of westward expansion, the Mexican-American War, and the forces of free banking, which are all the subjects of this episode. Speaking of westward expansion, we have to remember that going into the 1840s, the continental United States looked much different than it does today. As a little background, the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 led to the United States' western frontier basically looking as if you drew a diagonal line from Louisiana to Montana. From 1803 on then, and for about 40 years, everything between that line and the east coast remained the majority of the United States. But between 1845 and 1848, the U.S. managed to expand dramatically snatching up Texas in 1845, the Northwest Territories in 1846, and the Western States all the way to California in 1848. In just three years, the continental United States had grown by 66%. In this episode, we'll cover what happens to an economy when the landmass it oversees expands by two-thirds in just a few short years. I'm also going to argue that westward expansion was fueled by two things, riches and religion to a lesser degree. Regarding the latter, Methodist missionaries ventured into the Northwest region and established missions in Oregon, Idaho, and Washington. Meanwhile, Mormons ventured westward too, fleeing persecution after the assassination of their leader Joseph Smith in Missouri. The Mormons left settlements in the states of Wyoming and Nebraska, eventually settling in the Salt Lake Valley of Utah. Aside from the missionaries and those running from religious persecution, the lure of riches brought settlers into the rest of the United States, as each region became known for its respective commodity. For instance, cotton fueled the movement of Americans into the South, settling in states like Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, and Arkansas, while beaver pelts and furs sparked the movement of settlers into Oregon and the Rocky Mountain region. Companies like Hudson's Bay Company and the fur traders made their way all the way to the West Coast, where they would have found San Francisco Bay already a growing port for whalers. All the increased land and the products of that land sparked a transportation revolution that brought with it new railways, canals, and roads, and the transportation revolution sparked a commercial revolution. 
With all of the goods flowing around, the economy needed people to bring goods from the frontier to the closest cities, and to get goods from those cities to the larger metropolitan markets, the country needed railroads, train conductors, canal diggers, canal operators, a whole transportation infrastructure. Westward expansion also created a demand for bankers to finance new business operations, as well as a demand for new retailers and new wholesalers to sell all the new goods coming onto the market. It's all kind of a beautiful example of how the interlocking gears of an economy can begin to take shape and operate together. But there's something core to all of this which deserves pointing out, and I would be remiss not to mention it as a fundamental building block of the American economy and capitalism as a whole. It's the driving factor behind much of America's westward expansion. For those explorers seeking riches, and I would even argue for those looking to spread religion too. What I'm referring to is greed. Greed has a bad rap, but it's maybe the core reason for why the American economy has become the largest in the world. Adam Smith, when he wrote The Wealth of Nations, understood the power of self-interest, and he tried to harness that power with the notion of a free market economy which is one of minimal government intervention that unleashes the greed of its participants. The invisible hand, as Smith calls it, is the idea that a society benefits most when its people are free to benefit themselves. The 1840s and 1850s are a case in point of this concept. Allowing people to pursue their own self-interests, in other words, allowing people's greed to determine their actions and lifestyles, resulted in men and women traveling in droves to the far reaches of the country, to the unsettled corners, more often than not in search of personal gain or riches. This kind of blows my mind. We take it for granted in the United States that if you want to move to a new city or pursue a new career or just sit on your parents' couch for the rest of your life, you're free to do that. It's tempting to act like the economic system that we live in with all those freedoms was just handed down from the gods or something, but that's not the case. Human history is riddled with periods where people were forced into jobs by the government, or were forced to live in certain regions, or where the government had tight control on prices and the flow of goods and people. But by and large, the U.S. economy has stayed away from that kind of command and control. I sometimes think of economic history as the story of several different economic species attempting to survive and outcompete other economic species in the same environment. Like biological organisms, each economic species continually mutates and adapts with every new generation it evolves over time. From Diocletian's price controls to European mercantilism, to Soviet communism or Venezuelan socialism, it's like a natural selection process for the economic DNA of a society, as various traits are tweaked over time. With every new version, the economic levers get pulled slightly differently. Should there be price controls? How about labor conscription? Should companies be allowed to turn a profit? How should wealth be distributed? These are all issues that different species of economics have answered in different ways throughout history. The American version of economic DNA, where markets are generally free, profit potential is generally unlimited, and people are free to choose what sort of work they wish to pursue, is an iteration of economic DNA whose mutation allows for, or even promotes, virtually unfettered greed. In terms of creating an organism that can survive in its environment, the greed mutation gene seems to have allowed its host economy to thrive, frequently conquering opposing species of economics as it spreads its tentacles of Western capitalism across the globe.
Whether or not you think that's a good thing is up to you. Though it's pretty uncontroversial that the greed mutation gene in America's economic DNA has led to the formation of the largest economy in human history. On the flip side, of course, the greed mutation has also led to some of the widest wealth inequality seen in the developed world, as measured by the Gini coefficient. Real quick, among economists, the Gini coefficient is a common measure of a country's income distribution. A Gini coefficient of zero would indicate a perfect distribution where all people have the same amount of money, and a Gini coefficient of one would indicate perfect inequality. In other words, a Gini coefficient of one means one person controls all the wealth. According to the OECD, the U.S. has a coefficient of 0.39, which puts the U.S. as the fourth worst for income distribution among all developed economies. Mexico, Chile, and Turkey come in first, second, and third. Aside from income inequality, the greed mutation also raises environmental concerns, and as American economic history demonstrates, workplace safety and workers' rights have also been victim to corporate profits. Though, these last issues have been largely ameliorated by government regulation and unions over the last century and a half. Watching how the organism that is the American economy adapt to new legislation and new economic challenges has been and will continue to be an ongoing theme of this podcast. Diving back into the 1830s and 1840s, the panics of 1837 and 1839 induced a six-year depression. The speculative credit bubbles that fed the astronomical price increases of assets like cotton, real estate, and slaves had burst in 1839. Prices of those investments fell, along with prices of nearly all goods in the economy. Once banks stopped lending and credit froze, the bubble lost its fuel that kept its inflation going. Prices had nowhere to go but down. The resulting economic shutdown, a qualified depression, lasted until 1845. But then, helping to stimulate the economy out of the 1840s depression, around 1846, America's landmass began to grow dramatically. In Texas, American settlers began agitating for independence from Mexico, especially because slavery was illegal under Mexican law, while many of the American settlers there were pro-slavery Southerners who had pushed their way over from the Deep South. The settlers had first been invited by the Mexican government to settle in Texas and create a defensive buffer between Mexico and the encroaching British and French empires in the north. Remember, north of Texas wasn't owned by America yet. But the plan backfired when in 1836 the growing mass of Americans led by Sam Houston declared independence from Mexico. In 1845, the U.S. Congress annexed the land of Texas, making it the 28th state of the United States. Why this is relevant to the economic history of the United States is that the annexation of Texas directly caused the Mexican-American War in 1846. Economically speaking, the war itself didn't prove to be too much of a burden. Existing taxes and revenue from land sales covered most of the war expense, and the Treasury issued debt to cover the rest. The entire war only amounted to about 4% of 1847's gross national product. By contrast, the War of 1812 cost about 14% of national annual GNP, and the Civil War cost the Union 74% of annual GNP. On the far end of the spectrum, World War II 
cost the country 187% of annual gross national product at its height. So at 4% of GNP, the financial costs for the Mexican-American War weren't really that much. But the economic results of the war were enormous. Following the peace treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, America left the bargaining table with Texas and agreed to pay Mexico $15 million, that's about $450 million in 2018 dollars, for the territories of California, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and half of Colorado. After the Gadsden Purchase in 1853, which pushed the borders of Arizona and New Mexico further south, the U.S. had grabbed 55% of Mexico's territory, or landmass about the size of the continent of Europe. But the Mexican government wasn't aware of the magnitude of what they just lost. In one of history's great turns of fate, just nine days before the Mexican government signed Guadalupe Hidalgo, and before the Mexican government heard the news, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in California. California and the Northwest had already seen their share of settlers hoping to profit from the lucrative fur trade. But after the gold rush of 1849, Western expansion exploded. Greed flew into a frenzy as people from the East Coast, and from all over the world in fact, flocked to California in search of gold. The effect this had on the economy was the development of industries, roads, and settlements along the coast and in between to facilitate the approximately 300,000 prospectors who moved to California, which was a lot for a state of 7,000 non-natives before the rush began. Lumber was needed for houses and mines, cattle and farming was needed to feed settlers, and leather and cotton needed to clothe them. Gunpowder plants and machinery manufacturers and iron workers were all needed for the mines. All this is to say that the gold rush presented opportunities for profit not just from the gold, but from the supporting industries too. The gold rush caused a veritable economy of goods and services to form along the west coast. For example, demand for banking services and a secure way to transport gold gave rise to the founding of Wells Fargo in 1852. The $15 million that the U.S. had spent to acquire the land in 1848 gave rise to a mining industry which pumped nearly $2 billion worth of gold per year into the American economy, and that's in real values, by the way. But that was just from California alone. Other mines, like Nevada's Comstock Lode and Pikes Peak in Colorado, added to the wealth of the U.S. The gold rush wasn't just a Californian phenomenon. It had huge implications for the American economy. If we rewind our narrative a bit back to the Jackson administration, we might remember that President Jackson was strongly committed to the gold standard, so much so that he tried to get the country on a one-to-one -one specie reserve ratio between paper-printed money and the gold held on deposit. He never managed to accomplish that lofty goal of a one-to-one -one specie reserve ratio, though he did manage to pass the coinage acts in 1834, which put the country on a gold and silver coinage system, also known as a system of bimetallic coinage. By the way, astute listeners might remember Alexander Hamilton did the exact same thing back in 1792, trying to solve the chronic issue of a shortage of money. 
In addition to the Coinage Act, Jackson also passed a Companion Coinage Act, which allowed foreign gold and silver coins to circulate in the United States as legal tender. To the Jackson administration, specie was specie, regardless if it was minted in Spain, Mexico, the Caribbean, or the United States. And finally, as the last of his three major monetary reforms, President Jackson also established the U.S. Mint in 1835, which began pumping out gold coins. All this is to say is that Jackson tied the U.S. economy to gold and silver by way of the Coinage Act, the Coinage Companion Act, and the establishment of the U.S. Mints. On the heels of Jackson's reforms, the gold rush in the 1840s and 50s caused billions of dollars worth of gold to flood the American economy. How did that flood of gold affect the economy, which was on a gold standard? Well, in a nutshell, when all that gold entered circulation and the private bank faults, which just used that gold to back the printing of more paper notes, inflation began to emerge. Even hard money coinage, long the bulwark against inflation, lost its purchasing power as freshly mined gold and silver poured in from the West Coast. For context, in the mid-1800s, world gold production exploded from an average of a value of about $12.8 million per year in the 1830s to a peak of $155 million per year by the 1850s. Both of those are in nominal values, by the way. Because of this flood of gold hitting the market, the metal began to lose value as it became less and less scarce. Eventually, gold began to kick silver out of circulation, a la Gresham's Law, since surprisingly, the inflated gold became the inferior currency. Gold coins lost value with every new shipment coming in from California. It was a form of gold-driven inflation. The money which was used to buy things became less and less valuable, which meant prices went up and up, and as commonly comes on the heels of inflation, dangerous asset bubbles began to take shape throughout the economy. But gold-induced inflation wasn't the only force at work in the 1850s which began to induce frothing in the economy. Another angle at work had to do with the regulatory laxity of the 1850s, which was a period deep in the era of free banking. If we remember from episode 8, Jackson's bank war in the 1830s culminated in the destruction of the Second Bank of the United States. What followed became known as the Era of Free Banking, which lasted from 1837 to 1864. Essentially, it was a period where banks were free to do as they willed. The states loosely monitored some banks, but as far as central regulating authority goes, there was none. By the 1850s, 15 of 33 states had enacted free banking laws. It's interesting to consider what the banking industry did when its leash was cut. Some regions were conservatively minded, like New England, which devised its own private oversight system and clearinghouse to keep the banks honest, known as the Suffolk system. Meanwhile, other states' attempts at free banking were a total disaster. A few banks in Michigan, for instance, were found to have boxes of nails and glass as the supposed gold and silver that was supposed to be backing their notes. Worse still, some banks had no assets whatsoever. But not every bank was that bad. In general, here's how banking looked in a free banking state. Imagine you wanted to start a bank. Free banking laws meant that you didn't need a federal charter or any kind of regulatory approval from a central agency. You could just rent a building and open a bank after fulfilling a couple of the state's perfunctory requirements. For seed capital, you would sell shares of equity in your bank. 
This is where one of the few regulations did exist on the banking sector. With the money you raised from selling equity, the states required that you buy state government bonds for use as collateral for your operations. The states then were happy because that meant there would be no shortage of willing buyers of the state debt, which gave the states a nice source of cash. As a banker, you might not be thrilled that your bank's well-being just got tied to the financial health of the state, but oh well, that was the cost of doing business. Once you owned the state bonds, you could then begin printing banknotes, which you could issue out as loans. Interest that you collected on the loans that you issued, plus income from interest on the state debt that you own, was how you turned a profit. The paper notes that your bank printed, which were redeemable for gold and silver on demand, were as good as currency, and commonly found their way into circulation. But herein lies the fatal flaw of free banking. For one, without a regulatory body, who's monitoring the printing of banknotes to make sure that you aren't printing some unreasonably large amount of paper for the amount of specie that you hold to back it? And who's making sure you aren't just claiming to have that gold and silver to back your printed notes when actually your vault is filled with nails and broken glass? Prudent banks monitored their own specie reserve ratios and made sure they didn't get overextended. But other banks, commonly called wildcat banks, printed way too much paper money for the amount of specie that they had on deposit to back that paper. That meant if too many depositors showed up at a wildcat bank and demanded repayment, that bank would have no other choice but to declare bankruptcy once it ran out of gold and silver. The temptation for profit, combined with the hope that too many investors wouldn't show up to redeem their deposits on any one day at the same time, proved a systemic threat to the free banking paradigm. The other major threat to the free banking system was that the banks were tied to the fiscal health of the state. To understand how the banking system of the 1850s became tied to the financial well-being of the states, let me foray for a moment into the mechanics of bond pricing real quick. Imagine a state's fiscal health begins to decline for whatever reason, perhaps tax revenues are low some year or state expenses were higher than expected, whatever. From an investor's perspective, buying that state's debt just became a riskier venture than it was previously. Here's an example. Say Ender the lender gives Michigan State $1,000, for which Michigan gives Ender a bond which yields 5% per year. But the next year, Michigan's financial health declines for some reason. Say some natural disaster comes through and it causes state expenses to increase. Well now, investors will require more than 5% return if they're going to continue to buy Michigan state bonds. But then what happens to the bond that Ender the lender holds? Remember, he bought it before Michigan became a riskier investment, when 5% was an appropriate return for the level of risk that the state of Michigan represented. Ender's going to have a hard time reselling his bond, which only yields 5%, because demand for a bond like that will decline. Which makes sense. I mean, why would somebody buy a Michigan state bond from Ender that only yields 5% when they could buy a bond directly from the state of Michigan and have it yield some higher percent because of the higher risk it now entails? If you spaced out for the last two minutes, that's okay. Just keep in mind the rule of thumb that bond prices and interest rates move in opposite directions. If interest rates go up, a bond's price goes down. And if interest rates go down, a bond's price goes up. It was a relationship that existed in the 1850s, and it continues to exist in the bond markets today. You might be asking, but what does that have to do with the systemic threat to the 1850s banking system? Remember that the private banks were loaded with state bonds, 
it was a requisite to opening a bank in many states. Requiring that the private banks buy state debt not only provided a source of cash for the states, but those bonds also acted as collateral, which could be given to depositors if, for some reason, the bank were to go bankrupt. Now, if a state's financial health declines, it becomes a riskier investment, then interest rates must go up to compensate investors and lure them in to continue buying that state's debt. But what does that do to the value of the bank's existing bonds that were already sold? While interest rates have gone up, existing bond values will go down. If your bank had $50,000 worth of state bonds, but then the value of those bonds dropped to $40,000 because the state became a riskier investment, your collateral and depositor confidence in your bank will decline. And if bonds go down enough in price because the state's become so risky, it could break investors' confidence in your bank, it could spark a bank run, or it could freeze your bank's operations, or even force you into bankruptcy. The expansion of free banking, combined with the flood of new gold and silver circulating in the economy, gave rise to an inflationary boom, one that reached its peak just before the Panic of 1857. Now, there's a repetition here that's worth noting. The Panic of 1857 looked very similar to the Panics of 1837 and the Panic of 1819, in that all of them were at least partially the result of increases in the money supply. You could think of the cycle of the crises like this. The money supply increases for some reason. It could be excessive money printing, new gold or silver mines coming online, or loose lending from the banks. That new money has to go somewhere, and it typically ends up in one of two things, the real estate market or the stock market. The added demand from investors who need to put all of this new money somewhere causes the prices of real estate and stocks to increase. The price increase is enhanced because of the fear of missing out, FOMO as some people call it, which is where people see other people making a fortune in the stock market for instance and want to buy in themselves which increases aggregate demand. Gradually, and this is where the structural threat to the economy emerges, people begin taking out loans to fuel their involvement in the asset bubble. It might be a mortgage, or trading on leverage, or taking out a dangerously large loan to finance some new construction project. But all of that increased demand for debt pushes the banks to loosen their lending standards, so that they can make more loans to previously unqualified recipients. Nowadays, this might manifest as banks lowering their FICO or income requirements on the loans that they make. Eventually, the price bubble, which started from an increase in the money supply, but then was exacerbated by inflation, becomes sustained by debt from the banks. Prices can eventually get so high that people can't afford to buy in without taking out some debt first. At the heights of the bubbles before the Panic of 1819, 1837, and 1857, debt pervaded the economy, and lending was the only thing keeping asset prices at such lofty heights. Let me deviate away from U.S. economic history for a moment to prove my point. In Japan, in the 1980s, there was an enormous real estate bubble, which reached such stratospheric heights that at one point, a plot of land less than one and a half square miles was valued at more than the entire state of California. It's no coincidence that at that same point in time, total Japanese national debt was 275% of GDP. Obviously, this cycle can't go on forever. Eventually, something happens to slow the lending. Jumping back to U.S. economic history, 
1819, it was a sudden calling of loans from the Bank of England, which caused a monetary contraction. And in 1837 and 1839, it was a drop in cotton prices that broke the cycle. And in the upcoming crisis of 1857, it was a slowdown and saturation of the gold market. And by the way, in Japan around 1890, a rapid increase in interest rates by the Bank of Japan was what it took to break economic growth, causing the state of Japanese economics to morph from the epithet of quote-unquote the Japanese miracle to quote-unquote the lost decades. In any bubble, once prices flatten out and begin to decline, the first victims are the institutions who got heavily in debt betting on the upward movement of asset prices. Kind of like all of the bankruptcies of companies exposed to mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations in 2008. The institutions lose their income, and their business models begin to crack as their revenue dries up. The liabilities that these institutions took out to finance their involvement in the asset bubble come back to haunt them. Overexposed companies can be forced into bankruptcy, and whatever confidence consumers have in those companies or in the system as a whole can vanish. From an investor's perspective, the race to get rich quick suddenly becomes a race to keep any gains you made by dumping assets before prices can go down any further. Selling of assets becomes widespread and prices necessarily plummet, which can have the effect of putting even more companies out of business and worsening consumer confidence in the system. It's a vicious cycle. In all of these situations, Banks protect themselves first by tightening lending standards, literally cutting off the flow of money into the system. As we said earlier though, asset prices at the apex of a bubble are sustained usually by heavy debt financing. But now that debt financing is gone. The result is that prices drop a lot. We'll cover the details of the Panic of 1857 and see what else we can learn from it in a later episode. But hopefully by this point in the podcast, loosening lending standards, increased money supply, and inflation are all red flags on your economic bubble detector. Alright, let's do a check-in on the history before we wrap this episode up. The annexation of Texas in 1845 provoked the Mexican-American War in 1846. America won the war, and after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, America took from Mexico basically all of the southwest region of the current United States. At the same time, America negotiated the Pacific Northwest region from Britain, so by 1848, American territory had expanded about two-thirds. What was particularly consequential in the course of American economic history, just days before the signing of Guadalupe Hidalgo between the U.S. and Mexico, gold was discovered in California, which launched the largest mass migration in American history. At least 300,000 people moved west to the gold mines, giving rise to all new industries and vastly expanded the economy to the West Coast. Around the same time, free banking became the practice in about one-half of the states of the Union. During this period, there was no central bank or any federal regulatory agency, though some states did retain some regulatory authority, even in the free banking states. Regardless, the number of banks nearly doubled during the free banking era, from 712 in 1837 to 1,371 by 1861. All these new banks used all the new gold and silver entering circulation coming from the mines in the West to back the printing of more and more paper money, which gave rise to an inflationary boom that began in the 1850s. Though that inflationary boom would come to its peak in 1857 and eventually invite an entire depression, 
For now, the economic development of the West and the wealth and industry taking place there helped to pull the country out of a depression which lasted from the Panic of 1839 up till 1845. In the next episode, we'll take a break from the narrative of U.S. economic history to discuss the economic theories taking shape in Europe and throughout the world at the time. Namely, we'll see how Karl Marx was responding to the ruthless European capitalism of the early to mid-19th century. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at useconpodcast. 